Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going this week? Hey, I had a pretty good week. As out at Linux Fest Northwest, it was a good time. I had a day where the type of day that nobody wants to have if you're in technology. I just uh, I had the power go out on a bunch of servers in my lab that they're not on backup because they're supposed to be throwaway. But of course, I was in the middle of doing work, and that just oh, no. shattered everything. Uh, it it broke all of the things, and then it took me a couple hours to get it back up. And what I didn't realize was the the power outage actually shorted out the fans in the server case. And so then an hour or two later, all of the servers started shutting down and I couldn't figure out why and had to go down. And uh, I saw that the cable was dangling from the fans. And so I ended up not <laughs> once, but twice <laughs> having everything ruined due to like unexpected shutdowns oh, and this no. one wouldn't have been avoided by a ups well i can't do anything about your unexpected shutdowns for the ups but i can do something about unexpected shutdowns for the internet we're talking about net neutrality tonight and specifically common carrier background because there is a tie so broadly speaking common carrier refers to the provider must treat the traffic equally so this comes back from the 1934 communications act title II. Phone providers had to treat all traffic equally, meaning if you said something that the phone company didn't like, maybe you were bad-mouthing them, they still had to carry your phone call. That has its roots, or that is what net neutrality has its roots in, which is what we're going to be talking tonight. Net neutrality being ISPs must treat all traffic equally. So stemming from that 1934 Communications Act Title II, it got a little more complicated in 1980 with the Computer 2 policy. The ideas were that the ISP w was a common carrier, and but enhanced services were not. So, for example, you might remember things like AOL dial-up. They were able to dial up to the AOL service. The phone line was common carrier, but the enhanced services was not. So they were able to get away with a little bit more. Then in 2002, when cable broadband came out, they got an exception because it was their own infrastructure. And that, of course, ticked off DSL and other ISPs. So in 2005, ISPs across the board were declared not a common carrier. Now, that's important because between 2005 and 2015, the ISPs buried a lot of their own fiber. They paid for a lot of their own infrastructure. They made an investment under the understanding that they were not common carriers. So it came as a surprise to them in 2015 that ISPs were reclassified as common carriers, and it was largely seen as kind of this government takeover of the Internet. In 2017, a new JITPI was sat for the FCC position, and as a part of that, he repealed net neutrality. So joining us to help us understand these issues, it is Senator Kramer. He tweets at send Kevin Kramer. Senator Kramer, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Just listening to your setup there makes me nervous already. But that was a great history lesson. Um, I appreciate that a lot. Good to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time, sir. So the Federal Communication Act on voted on Thursday to move forward with a proposal to restore open Internet rules, that they call it, which were repealed mm -hmm. during the Trump administration with the final vote likely to come next year. And the FCC will be taking public comments on the proposed rule. The chair uh, can then choose to incorporate comments into the final draft and we'll probably see that early 2024 at the earliest. So my first question to you, sir, we've seen the FCC give tax subsidies to things like the Universal Service Fund, uh, which assists yes. with low-income low customers, helping them pay for monthly telephone services and rural health care support mechanisms that allow them uh, to get providers to pay for rates and school and library supports. If the infrastructure is subsidized by tax dollars, should that infrastructure be common carrier? 
So that is a great question and a great catch because universal service funds, for people that may not know what those are, that, that's a fund – that's a tax that everybody that uses a telephone pays, and it and then it's then distributed to um, underserved areas, really high expense areas, right? So North Dakota uh, telecos, uh, particularly rural telephone companies, um, receive universal service funds to build out part of their network. And frankly, one of the interesting things about the internet and its relation, broadband in particular, and its relation to rural telephone cooperatives in North Dakota is, I always say. Our rural telephone cooperatives were were broadband before broadband was cool. They were using universal service funds to build out, you know, for example, fiber to the home um, long before most pretty pretty much any other state was doing it because they just were making those forward leaning um, investments. And so it does raise your question: if this is if this is publicly supported, should they be um, more highly regulated? To which I'd say. No, they should not. We we have lots of areas where um, certain things are subsidized, but they don't. Those subsidies uh, don't come with the uh, implied regulation of the heavy hand of the federal government because the internet is still a largely. Um, very competitive, even in North Dakota, competitive industry, particularly with the advancement of technologies like, you know, wireless Wi-Fi. Um, you know, to your point, in fact, that kind of kicked this whole thing off. Um, you know, when when the cable companies came in and put fiber to the home or even cable itself, and then became a competitor to the uh, Ma Bell, you know, monopoly uh, telephone company, it just changed the whole landscape. So. Um, I don't think that I don't think the use of universal service funds, which are you know used around the the country and in a broad way, are are a trigger, if you will, for for the regulation. So it's interesting. Uh, it's nice to talk with you, Senator Kramer. It's the first time that I've My spoken pleasure. with you, but I've listened to you on the on Noah's show in the morning from time to time. Um, I was wondering whether or not uh, it would make sense for some of these things to move under the FCC then instead of the FCC if if you know we're not going the route of the common carrier. Yeah. So so some of them were. It's an interesting question because the history of this is that prior to the reclassification, some of these things like um, you know compet- the competitive things were under the FTC. It's 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 when it's when uh, as I think about Noah's little uh, monologue there. Um, when it became part of the telecommunications service, that it fell under FCC. So, because some of the precepts that we're talking about, some of the precepts, some of the conditions, or, or the the actual specific things that would be regulated under net neutrality, are part of are, are pretty commonly accepted. Things like you know, no discrimination, no blocking, no throttling of uh, you know of certain content, things like that. Those are principles that that conservatives as well as liberals, I think, largely agree with. If you're a free market conservative, you should agree with those kinds of things. Um, but it's not what it's not is a is a regulated monopoly utility. That, that in fact, I think the internet's the best example of how competition actually works and how innovation and technology and the advancement of it is done, is is best unleashed in a free market competitive system. And while while there might be some federal um, or for that matter, if, if there might be tribal or, or other types of um, incentives, those incentives aren't specific to the uh, technology so much as um, provided to sort of equal the playing field for uh, underserved and unserved areas, particularly when you have things like healthcare and education, um, you know, sort of resources and sources of, of um, services that we value in, in our communities across the country. 855-450-NOAA, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening. That's you, Sleuth. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there you are. What would you say to people that only have one good choice for Internet? For example, the city that I live in used to have a agreement with Spectrum where they were the only cable provider for Internet in this city. And their prices were not very competitive with other cities and neither was their service. That agreement has since expired, and now we have many options, one of which is fi- a fiber option, and they've all come down in price, and they've all gotten a lot more reliable and better service. 
Yeah, it, you know, it's a it's a great question because the the concept of uh, a regulated utility, a regulated monopoly, monopoly utility, really goes even further back than the than the um, Telecom Act. It goes back to to uh, the Railroad Act back in the eighteen hundreds. Um, and your example is exactly, I think, why we don't net, need net neutrality. Because even in North Dakota, and granted, I give a lot of earned credit to our rural telephone cooperatives who are very forward-leaning and could see this well out in front. But North Dakota is the center, center of the North American continent. Uh, we have some advantages you know, with wireless and that we don't have a lot of trees and mountains in the way. So wherever there's line of sight, there's a lot of technologies that work well. But now you have, of course, even space. You, 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 you know, you have... Um, Starlink, for example, that provides a, an umbrella in certain unserved areas. There's a lot of competition that has picked up that slack. And I, what I worry about is if you if you adopt net neutrality in its in its most fundamental form. And when I say that, it may start out as just uh, you know non-discrimination, no blocking, no throttling. But but Title II of the Act gives the FCC rate-making authority. Um, they, they, can de- de- uh, they can determine a rate of return, for example, much like you used to with Ma Bell with AT&T. And so this is what I mean by even in North Dakota, there are places that are fairly remote that have three or four options. Um, I, sometimes, I almost feel guilty sometimes when I talk to some of my friends from other places uh, in the country when, I, when, I, when they talk about how unserved or underserved they are, and I say, my goodness, do we have it nice in North Dakota. But I think your example is kind of my point. Um, you give it a little time, competitors will find their way, even even in the most rural places. So where I live, we have a lot of mountains. So if you live outside of a city, your options are DSL, which is terrible around here, cable if you're lucky, which will be one provider, mm-hmm. Starlink maybe, and Starlink is iffy a lot of places. So really, if you don't have access to some sort of a cable provider, and most of that's Comcast around here, which isn't very good, then you're kind of out of luck. I have a lot of friends that still are stuck on dial-up or Comcast, and it's old Comcast lines that aren't very good. Sure. So, no, great points, and it's not it's not irrelevant, obviously. And this is where a big argument comes in, Noah. Sometimes you've already heard me refer to unserved and underserved. The definition of underserved is always changing because the definition of broadband is always changing. Yes. 25 is not enough anymore, right? So, so there, there's no question there is a there is a, a small percentage of outliers, and this caller probably lives in one of those. And I do think there can be exceptions uh, made for that, and I don't mean net neutrality exceptions, but but you might notice in the infrastructure bill that we passed, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that gets so much attention, and I was very involved in the architecture of that, and one of the areas that we put a lot of money into was unserved and underserved broadband to try to build out options and alternatives in places like this caller is describing exactly. So it would actually be sort of interesting. Now, I would say this. When we were doing all of that, by the way, the definitions of, of the various utilities or the providers that, that could access some of those funds, um, uh, Elon Musk called up you know, the, some of the senators and said, uh, I could settle this for a lot less money with Starlink. I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, the problem with even a Starlink is they ha- they can cherry pick a little bit themselves. The pr- the difference being that there's no point in them going someplace that's already very well served. So I don't know how you know net neutrality could keep the price of that down because obviously the cost of putting up a a network of satellites, low low Earth orbiting satellites, could be quite a bit. But there are technological solutions that maybe aren't quite you know, commercial enough yet to be to be uh, competitive. But that's, again, that's why we passed that bill with the kind of dollars we passed specifically for broadband. Excellent. Yeah. Steve, did you have a follow-up? So it was related to uh, something that you said earlier when you were talking about Ma Bell and stuff like that. Um, one of, one of the <laughs> sure. books that I really like is called The Master Switch, and it kind of goes over a bunch of the... Uh, the history of telecommunications uh, going all the way back from the telegram forward. And that triggered a, a thought. So I, I moved down from Canada and in Canada we have, uh, we still have bell up there and they were able to get a sweetheart deal from the government such that once they've laid an infrastructure in an area, 
no other competition is allowed to use to lay new infrastructure because they're trying to get the infrastructure to kind of roll out instead of just constantly serving the largest areas, right? And this has led to kind of what the caller was talking about, where you'd get Bell come into an area and they lay the lines, whatever it is, and now you're stuck because that's it. Unless, uh, so the government did come in and say, well, you have to sell part of, like you have to give some spectrum of the uh, service to competitors, like resellers and such like that. But as you can imagine, that's not really a good solution anyways. You're still all on the same infrastructure. So I wondered, is there a, a concern of that sort of thing happening here on one side or the other, whether you go with common carrier or not? Yeah, so so great question and great example, because that is exactly what happened with the breakup of Mob Bell, right? That, that in, interconnection agreements were suddenly the rage. When I was, you, you might you might have seen the letter that or the op-ed that we sent you, Noah. I think my office sent you anyway, that I yes. wrote in 2009 on this very topic when I was a public service commissioner in North Dakota, because while while the you know the um, breakup of of AT and T created lots of competitors there's still some regulatory um oversight of even if you want to be a rate of return um company a telephone company in north dakota you can be i think there's only one or two that have actually chosen that the vast majority are are competitive um lax or as they they're called and um they ride on the infrastructure of the incumbent lec so you have sort of a hybrid the reason I think that's not relevant in, in this in the internet case is because there are so many other technologies. And frankly, I would submit to you, it's not even relevant in telecom anymore. I mean, if the, if the cell phone world hasn't proven that you don't necessarily you don't need all that other stuff. Now, there's as long as there's a phone in the house or in the office, a hard line, there is a a, a last mile or a last you know ten yards or whatever the case might be that hooks up to to some hard infrastructure. But even all of that has changed dramatically with digital telecommunications. So I do worry about about your point that could be an outcome actually of net neutrality, and I think that's part of what those that would promote net neutrality. I think that's part of what they long for. The problem is, is that horse is way out of the barn. And I would even submit to you at this point, by the way, we haven't even talked about the legality of net neutrality. I don't believe, and, and nor do a couple of Barack Obama's former commissioners believe, that net neutrality will survive uh, a Supreme Court challenge anymore because of the major questions doctrine that was used in um, West Virginia versus the EPA because they've never given that authority under the Telecom Act. They've never been given that authority. And you don't get to take authority. Remember, in fact, when you go back a little further, you guys, I've never been so nerdy for a long time. So Noah, thank you for the (laughs) opportunity. But, But if you go back to the previous one or two generations of this discussion, um, it was the Chevron doctrine that the Supreme Court used to allow some net neutrality. And, but, and Chevron is the doctrine that says, absent clarity, we defer to the regulatory agency. They're the experts. And as you might imagine, to a mean-spirited right-winger like me, that's obnoxious. Because if the Congress doesn't give you the authority specifically in law or the founders in the Constitution, you don't have it. And that's the new doctrine. And so so Chevron's been replaced with major questions doctrine. And I just don't think them – I just don't believe, and I think most lawyers, most legal experts don't believe, that net neutrality would survive a challenge at this particular Supreme Court in this time. Can you talk about the openness principle? You said back in 2009, you they were working very well for consumers and, and service providers. Uh, what are those openness principles and, and what do you mean by they're working well? Yeah, so it's a great question because they are, they are some of the specific stated principles of advocates of net neutrality, except they're also working. So things like, you know, prohibition on throttling. Throttling is choosing what to promote on your internet what to push on your on your internet service provider or on or on your cable or on your whatever your ISP is whoever you are same is true of blocking particular content legal content um cannot be blocked by the uh, the network provider um you know, and, and price discrimination. And this is one, guys, that, you know, you talk about one that's that I love talking about. This is one that's sort of unsettling to me, to be honest. This is one mm-hmm. where it's, it's still evolving in my pea brain. And that is 
gee, should Netflix be able to take up, you know, 80% of the pipe, uh, you know, during primetime hours uh, for the same price, uh, you know, Netflix, that is, paying the same price for access as, say, uh, you know, the school, the, the local library uh, with its content. And, and that's, but that gets to more to the content provider, not the end user, because the end users are obviously subscribing to some of these paid services. That's a legitimate discussion, I think. So um, I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, but, but th- those would be the basic principles that are already governed either by law and rule or, frankly, more effectively by the marketplace itself. So um, I read through your your net neutrality statement and listening to some of your answers here, which, by the way, you're very articulate. I I enjoy this conversation very much. Um, (laughs) Thank you. So thank you for that. Um, I was wondering, so you kind of talked about um, concern about an ISP blocking a customer's access to the internet. Uh, do you have any examples or any patterns of this happening? Like, are there cases where complaints are resolved when this happens? Yep. So I can't think of one off the top of my head, but when I was a commissioner, <laughs> uh, you know, a dozen years ago um, in North Dakota, there were occasional complaints that would come up about a particular content. And, and some of it, by the way, guys, some of that's even been fixed just by the sheer magnitude and speed of the new, you know, the newer technologies and the internet and the, and the you know, the, even the same spectrum being able to squeeze more because of digitization and all these things that, that, that have made things better and faster and, and, uh, and bigger. But um, there, we would have some, but they were always quickly resolved. And I wish I could think of one right now. I just, it's been too long, but yeah, we'd get a call from somebody or maybe even a particular area, a smaller community or something mm-hmm. where their where their streaming service wasn't working very well from seven to nine, you know. And of course, most of that was a function of again, you know, just a whole bunch of users on at the same time. And but when we would share that, usually just share it with the company. We didn't have any regulatory authority over it, but we but we we're pretty good ombudsmen. Um, same with cell companies. We, we didn't discipline them, but we did facilitate a lot of this sort of public service and um, almost always just resolved quite quickly and, and pretty painlessly. Uh, and in some cases, it was actually us facilitating a market. In other words, um, and that still happens, by the way, in, in, in even in Congress for certain things, where if you know your congressman or you know your senator, if you call them and, you know, they make an inquiry, sometimes things happen that, that might not otherwise happen. What might have happened if you just called the provider or, you know, or the content provider? And so we had a lot of those. I just can't think of a specific one right now, but we, we did, definitely took a lot of them. So if I may, I'll give you an example from Canada sure. and again. Um, sure. I love to whip on Bell. I, I have a very much a hate-hate relationship with that company. So uh, it was a couple of years ago now when World of Warcraft was at its kind of peak. What was happening was if you were on Bell, you were uh, beyond disadvantaged because they, they were using, uh, they being World of Warcraft, the updater was using a technology that Bell decided was just clogging up their network. So it wasn't just standard HTTP traffic to pull down the updates. And so they just summarily blocked it and they never told anybody. And it took uh, one of our newspaper exposés to to bring it to light. And even then they were just, they just kind of shrugged and were like, yeah, you know, it, it, it comes up the work for everybody else. And that, that was a pretty big problem because Bell laid a lot of the infrastructure in Canada. Yeah, for sure. And this this is exactly the problem with net neutrality. If you confine an area to a single provider and that provider then subjects themselves to rate regulation and a you know a you know a cost of doing business sort of analysis with a rate of return guarantee, you're you're simply not going to get the same type of service as if you have your your uh, your telephone company competing with your cable company in the same markets. Now again, that doesn't can't happen everywhere. But I'll tell you what, with the advancement of what's called you know nowadays you have nomadic broadband. So you know you'll ha- you might have uh, if you're on a farm for example, you'll have internet or uh, fiber to the the 
the farm shed, but then from there you have a transmitter, you know, uh, that, that goes to the tractor or whatever the case might be. There's lots of ways now to, to create opportunities, but, but net neutrality blocks those opportunities and really stifles the innovation that, that, and this is true not just in Canada, this is true throughout Europe. Europe has this sort of same type of a net neutrality regime, and the consequence is that there's just not a lot of private investment taking place in those areas. one 855 no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hi, hi Senator. Um, hi so there. I have a question uh, since you were, your previous role was facilitating communications between the customers and the internet companies, what would mm-hmm. there in my particular area? And I'm in a very highly populated sort of metro area right outside of a city. Sure. There's mm-hmm. a very common practice that in a apartment complex will sign a service mm-hmm. deal with a particular provider and not allow any other internet provider into the complex and then in their bylaws prevent you from putting up Starlink or a sat dish or et cetera. What would your answer be to a situation like that? Well, that sounds like a really bad business model for an apartment for quite honestly, I, I, I don't, I don't understand unless, of course, they they have some sort of sweetheart deal with that provider. I suppose that's possible, and I would struggle with that. That that seems like that seems like an FTC issue off the top of my head. So I, I don't. I've never heard of that um, happening, at least not in North Dakota. But um, that doesn't mean it doesn't. I've just never heard of that. That that would be very objectionable to me. That that would be a violation of, in my view, my opportunities. But Unless, of course, I, I can move. I always have that right, but I don't know how easy that is where you live. It's interesting. You, what you've just described, though, as a location, a, a community just outside of a larger city, one of the conflicts I remember we had to referee a few times early on, and I don't know how prevalent this is anymore in North Dakota, but because of the growing out of, uh, you know, of a city into the country or the country going into the city, um, you might have a, you might have a telecom, you know, one of these rural telephone cooperatives, like I mentioned earlier, who does get universal service funds to provide this service competing with the cable company that's in the same footprint. And that sometimes has been a sort of an unfair advantage, if you will. And, You'll get the cable company crying foul. Um, you'll get, you know, you'll, but but at the same time, they tend to cherry pick as well. So it seems to all work out in the wash. But your example, I've never heard of, and my only initial response would be it sounds offensive to me. But um, I, I guess I'd try to move. Internet access is becoming critical to modern life. It's it's today yeah. it's as as critical as you know electricity or running water. How would you address the people who say? I have limited access to the internet. I, you know, for example, I live in a low income area or I live in a rural area. Um, and with this constant migration to online services, even for government services, for example, sometimes a simple billing issue could disconnect a citizen from government services. And so we call that, you know, largely refer to that as the digital divide. Uh, we saw that increased during the pandemic. How would you respond to those, uh, to those people? Yep. So you, we did see that in, happened during the pandemic when we were all forced to go to the doctor online to you know go to get take our classes online uh, particularly if they were streaming or video classes and it it takes up a lot more um bandwidth but at the same time over the course of that pandemic you saw a build out like never before that that you know innovators and entrepreneurs just found ways to get that service to people and because there was money to be, be made in it um and, and again, this is part of why, in you know, the, some of the legislation that followed, we made it even more available. One of the pieces of legislation, I, I, when I think back to my House days, when I was in the House, I was on the what's called the Energy and Commerce Committee, and I was on the Telecommunications Subcommittee. And and a, a call, colleague of mine at the time, and now he's a colleague of mine in the Senate, Peter Welsh, who was the the lone congressman from Vermont, Democrat, and I got together and we introduced and passed and it's now law legislation that allows rural um, 
nursing homes, nursing facilities to use universal service funds to build out their localized internet for um, to be used for um, you know video conferencing and telemedicine as a matter of you know, quality of life, as a matter of uh, you know convenience, so that they could stay longer in a nursing home rather than have to go into a hospital, for example. It was a preventative medicine idea. Hugely successful. So, we, we, you know, the government can create some incentives through things like the Universal Service Fund and, and some of the education funds and, and even, um, even uh, health care, you know, Medicare and Medicaid st- funds for access like, like uh, telemedicine and use of Universal Service Funds. So I would say, no, I, what I wouldn't want is a knee-jerk reaction that just has a government build out, if you will, to those areas, but maybe, you know, knock down some barriers and provide some appropriate incentives that make the market work rather than dictate the terms of the market. So I want to circle back a little bit um, to some of the ideas that you, you kind of circled around them yourself a few times. So a lot of people would say, including myself, that Broadband providers are private businesses, and I have a hard time coming to an understanding when I put on my my business hat and say, okay, should someone be able to reach in and dictate policies in my business or not? And I'm not exactly sure how I fall down on this. So I'm curious, do they get to run their business as they choose? They slow down stuff or speed up or, you know, provide accelerated access to specific things like Netflix or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you, and if you don't like it, you know, change providers, like where do you fall on that? No, I, I think, I do think that I think blocking should be illegal. I think throttling should be illegal. Um, I don't think what I I don't think that they should be able to, um, you know, push out, say a, a higher paying, um, service, but I do think some of these services should pay more for more capacity on the internet. I, I should say, I, I think that's worth exploring. Um, I, I, you know, I've always been more practical than ideological. Um, I have some pretty strong principles, but we, you know, we come from a populist part of the country for a reason. You know, North Dakota has a state-owned bank you know, to fight back the big banks in Minneapolis and the state-owned mill to fight back against the big millers in, in the Twin Cities you know, back in the day. And so we have this strain uh, that runs through this populism strain that was here way before Donald Trump. And um, so I have that in me as well. But I would say there are some principles such as blocking and throttling that should be um, illegal. Just as a matter of while not a monopoly, it's also it is also quasi utility. It's not utility, but it's quasi utility. It does enjoy some government protections, and it does ride on some government right of way and, and things like that. That that I think, and not to mention just commerce itself, does have some rules uh, around it. And those would be principles I, I would advocate in law. Um, I, what I don't advocate for is some sort of a rate regulation or an overall Title II, as it's called. That's the distinction between Title I and Title II, is full rate regulation, which is what the net neutrality um, rule um, provides. So like both of you, I, I largely come down and I'm not into telling other businesses what to do. And we advocate on the show all the time, own your own infrastructure, in part because we don't own the ISPs. They own themselves. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what prevents independent content creators like myself and and this very show from being put in the so-called slow lane? What's to stop large companies from prioritizing the Internet in, in their favor? I think that is I think that is uh, a law that that if it's, if it's not a law today can be passed. I, I, I don't think they should be able to do that. And if you wit, if you experience that. I think you have every right in the world to call you know, your regulator, call your congressman, call it, you know whoever at either the state or the federal level, and and, and launch that complaint and and, and look into it. I, I just don't think they should be able to do that. So um, you know that that would that would be my remedy, <laughs> rather than again a full fledged regulatory regime that would. Um, you know, get get to, get deeper into your business than you'd want them to get into it, and that's again, that's that's what that's what stifles innovation. I think a light. I always use the term light touch regulation. I'm, I think regulation is appropriate in many cases. I mean, the government is already very involved in lots of things, including taxation, including infrastructure and commerce, and 
and and uh, you know protecting against monopolies and whatnot. So, but I think a light touch is much better than the heavy hand, and I think net neutrality is the heavy hand. Whereas a few of these principles, like blocking and throttling and, provi- and prohibiting them, are the light touch. JG four eight eight four in the chat room asks. Aren't ISPs notorious for pr- promising expanded broadband in the past, but then they deem arbitrary numbers as enough for consumers, yet countries like Sweden and South Korea are thriving with broadband and broadband speeds? I'm not sure I understand that entirely. So essentially I, what he's I, saying is, essentially, I think if I'm understanding what he's saying, he's he's saying, sure. is, is are the ISPs promising expanding broadband, but then they deem that oh, what see. they've done is, is enough? Oh, Sure. So I, I, that's a risk, particularly in places that, that don't have a lot of competition. But we have so much competition for that same customer that that can only work so long. That's Again, that's one of those principles I really do believe and believe in strongly. One of the things, one of the areas, just as, as an example, you've all seen the uh, TV ad probably with Ted Danson and the, and the two maps of, of a uh, cell phone company coverage maps, and they're both exactly the same coverage. One's just a different color and one costs less than the other mm-hmm. one. That, that's an example of an application in telecom. One of the, one of the biggest areas of, I, I, I'll use the most um, harsh term, but it might be too harsh, but I'll use it anyway. It's in, fra- in terms of fraud, fraudulently um, advertising or marketing, something you, you either do or you're going to do in terms of service, you know, the, the speed of the internet, the coverage and whatnot, that's illegal. That, 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 that should not be allowed. And if consumers see too much of that or see any of that, they should, they should call the appropriate regulators or authorities and cry foul, and um, but those things again tend to be pretty well disciplined by the market itself, the consumer themselves. The consumer is always the best regulator, but sometimes mm. you don't. Sometimes you don't have enough consumers to um, apply that pressure and regulate. Again, thus the light touch. But no, what you've described is not not. I don't know that it's common, but it certainly can happen. When ISPs were classified as common carriers, there were more of them around. And as they've been declassified, obviously, as they have to put in their own infrastructure to exist, that number has gone down. What impact, if any, do you believe net neutrality would have on ISP competition? I, I just think it would, I think it would stifle, in a, stifle investment myself. I, I really do. I just think what, what happens is, and by the way, I think prices would go up ultimately as well. Now, there are some people that will argue that, obviously, and they're not dumb people. Um, but I just think it's more likely that, that with the lack of competition, with a guaranteed return on your equity, which is what rate regulation guarantees you, it, it, it provides you protection from competition, but it also um, it also diminishes your, your potential um, you know, margins. Um, I just think the outcome would be exactly counter to what we would want in a in a market that's pretty dang robust already. Um, I would like to see entities like Starlink, and I think as prices go down, as the as the the, the launching of more low Earth orbiting satellites, as those prices go down and the operation of them, they're practically a commodity now. Um, I, I actually think there's more newer innovation that could become even more ubiquitous than uh, what we already see. So with with the newer innovation, do you think it's time to either uh, take an axe to the Communication Act, or or maybe at least breathe a little new life into it? <laughs> you you are you trying to get me in trouble? So um, actually, I, I have I've thought it's time to take on the Telecommunications Act for a long time, and that even applies to the telephone industry, the, the telecommunications industry. Um, with everybody, with people, more and more people cutting the cord. I mean, I just did recently. I haven't had a phone, uh, a hardline phone in my house for a couple of years, but I've been paying, you know, the cable company for that service for a couple of years. Um, you know, I like, I always prefer to do Noah's radio show on a hard line, but you know, nowadays cell coverage, the cell phones are almost as good or better. And in some cases, the microphones literally are better. So yeah, I do think it's time to take a hard look at the Telecommunications Act, but I also know that you, this is that would be a very heavy lift, and there'd better be some 
smart people ready to conduct those hearings because that would be a, that would be a battle royale. But I'm all for it. I think it's time to do exactly that. Tiny in the chat room says, should the federal government or state government step in to break up local monopolies that aren't serving their customers well? Well, I don't. If we're speaking specifically of um, ISPs, I, you know, I, I can't see that. Um, if we're talking about something else, yeah, there are, for example, you no know, other areas where there are monopolies that are protected by the government, and you know, rural rural hospitals are one of them. We have in North Dakota 36 what are called critical access hospitals. They they're you know guaranteed protection from competition. Well, actually, they're what they're guaranteed is a very small. Um, rate of return or margin on their on their covered uh, expenses or their covered services, um, but they also don't have another hospital within 50 miles. So I, I don't know that you could, quote, break them up so much as maybe try to incentivize um, competition uh, or, or subsidize the rate. But I don't know if the, if the texter is referring specifically to the Internet or not. Senator Kevin Kramer, we appreciate the time as always. We'd love to get you back on the program soon. You've exhausted all my knowledge, so I don't know. We'd have to come up with a better topic. But you know who I would – I was thinking about you guys, and Noah, you would like him a lot. Uh I think you guys would – well – he would really, you'd love him, and that's Ajit Pai. You referenced him earlier. You remember he was he was the chair of the FCC under um, Trump. So he's the guy that overturned the 2015 net neutrality rule, and then now it's his that's being overturned by the the current FCC. Um, Ajit's a Kansas guy, just a really great. He's been to North Dakota many times. Uh, he did a couple of events with me. Um, he'd be a good guest on your show. So if if you want to make the contact, I'd be happy to reach out to him sometime. I would love that, Senator. And again, I. Deep- Deeply appreciate the time you shared with us this evening. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, sir. Have a good one. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, should we do some email? Let's do it. All right. Our first email comes in tonight from John. John writes in and says, hi, guys. Do either of you have experience in expanding a PFSense VLAN from a slash 24 to a slash 23 or greater? Initially, I set up VLAN 20 to be 192.168.10.0 slash 24. As I'm starting to run out of space, I want the interface to be changed over to the gateway IP from a slash 24 to a slash 23. Side note, I expected the PFSense to expand into the 192.168.11 subnet, but instead it went into the 192.168.9. I wonder why that is. Then I added the DHCP range and started the service. The new host came up with 192.168.9 subnet, and you could get to the internet. However, I was noticing that the firewall logs of the communication is being blocked between .10. and .9. After some searching, I found that the bypass firewall rules for the traffic on the same interface under System Advanced Firewalls NAT. The description reads, this option only applies if one or more static routes have been defined. This is enabled. Traffic that enters and leaves through the same interface will not be checked by the firewall. This is desirable in some situations where multiple subnets are connected to the same internet interface. This seems like it would be the right option. However, I still am finding traffic is being blocked. I've also tried creating explicit rules between the .9 and .10 subnets, allowing all the traffic, all of the protocols in all of the directions, but I'm still receiving the blocked by default deny any rule. What gives? How can I expand to VLAN? And how come this problem? And, and is this a problem with VLANs, or is this something related to PFSense? Thanks. So, Steve, what say you? So, I went digging and I found several people that that had had similar things, not trying to expand a VLAN, but just simply like this. This error has been confounding people, or I shouldn't say error. I should say uh, this note in the firewall log. Um, what I found was probably what this this uh, listener found which was the top 10 results for things like this. If you dig is, hey, go turn on this setting because it's likely that you have a single NIC that is hosting multiple IP ranges, which that's exactly what would be happening here. So turn this thing on because it should tell the firewall, just let everything through if it's coming through and then back on the same interface. Um, There were some manual steps. uh, If the, like they, the PFSense documentation called this the automatic fix, and there were some manual steps, although it sounds very like 
without a better description of exactly what the rules were, and I'm not a PF Sense expert, it sounds like the listener tried that as well. So I, I drew a blank. I also was puzzled by, and I confirmed on my own, that it went down a subnet instead of up a subnet, and I don't know why that is either. So the answer to that really is, and you'd almost have to write this out, but essentially when we're talking about subnets, when we say 255, 255, 255, those sorts of things, right? Really what we're talking about is masking bits out. And so if we write out eight ones, in a, eight ones, that would be all of the bits are masked. That's how we get 255. And so if we understand binary, we look up a binary chart, we're starting with one, then we go to two, then four, then eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. All the bits added up together, that's how we get our 255. So depending on when the ones start and the zeros start, that's where the subnet is going to, is going to break. And so you can use it's it's important to wrap your head around why things work this way. And so I would encourage you to look up some sub, subnetting videos and that will give you more of an understanding as it's kind of hard to explain in audio only. But the 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 short version is if you start adding up the bits and you look at where that break is, it's if you if you divide it into a slash 23, half of that subnet is going to be on nine. The other half is going to be on on 10. But I think it's important to note here, we're not really creating two subnets. If you've changed it from a slash 24 to a slash 23, you have a larger subnet. You don't have two subnets, you have a larger subnet. Thus, you shouldn't need any firewall rules to route between what is one gigantic subnet. My guess, if I were a betting person, is if you go and look in the interface where you've defined your network inside of PFSense, my guess is somewhere in there you still have a slash 24. The other thing to consider is all of the devices after they get their slash 23 must be rebooted or at least have their network interfaces cycled. If you don't do that, you'll be able to talk to some things on the network, but not other things because some devices will have a slash 24 and others will have that slash 23, but the ones that have the slash 24 aren't aware of the slash 23. Ah, you know what? I wonder if that isn't it. Uh, Again, not enough detail, but I would imagine if I was testing this out, I probably wouldn't think, hey, I've got 200 devices or however many I have that I need to expand. I need to reboot them all. Right. Like, I don't know that I would think that. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's one of the most common things I see is when we expand a subnet is uh, in getting all the devices uh, to refresh. And then sometimes you get static uh, tables and stuff. That so, But just powering it off, powering it back on almost always fixes it. So give that a shot. And if not, right back in. We'd love to help. Our second email comes in from Rit. Rit writes in and says, is this outlandish? Running all traffic through a PFSense VM hosted on Fedora 38 running Virtual Machine Manager or Proxmox. Haven't quite decided. So essentially, it would go to the internet to the ISP's router to bridge my NIC to my Fedora machine, then to a VM. Um, so I think if I'm understanding right, Steve, he's talking about just virtualizing PFSense on a Fedora box. I'm not sure why that would be a bad idea at all. I did this for a super long time, like two or three years, uh, because I was not comfortable admitting PFSense, but I was comfortable admitting Ubuntu. And so I had an Ubuntu with a PFSense VM that, and I had no issues because if you're passing the NIC into the VM, then the host doesn't even see it anyways. So it's not like there's any kind of chance of leaking out to the ISP that you're running Ubuntu, or in this case, Fedora. Yeah, I so uh, we played with it for a little bit in in production at at a few clients, and ultimately we jettisoned the idea not because it didn't work; it worked fantastically well. Um, in fact, it made a lot of things really easy. But we noticed that one of the potential issues is obviously if you have a bad day with your vhost, now you've lost your access to the internet to research how you can go about fixing your vhost, and so it's kind of it's kind of that that thing of having all your eggs in one bas- basket. So. Just for redundancy's sake, I like the idea of having the router on its own separate thing. And then oftentimes if I'm caring about redundancy or I want to virtualize, sometimes I'll have a physical router and then maybe I'll have a virtualized router, but there's a physical one there that's also running PFSense that you can just kind of slide back uh, back and forth between. Chris writes in and says, after listening to your thoughts on the U.S. emergency alert test, I was thinking about the premise of the U.S. government reaching into your phone, and I'm not sure I agree with that, to be fair. I do find testing annoying, but if you approach it from the other side, the cellular network, it makes a lot more sense. 
your device is connecting to a government-regulated communication network, the cellular infrastructure. Under the U.S. Warren Act, Congress allowed participating wireless carriers to offer subscribers the capability to block all WAA except national alerts. So all devices provided by wireless carriers must be capable of receiving those alerts. Optionally, you can also disable most alerts, but must prohibit disabling national alerts. But then it goes back to the alert broadcast over cellular networks. So you can avoid them simply or inconveniently by disconnecting from the cellular service and going Wi-Fi only. I have to be honest, Steve, that guy makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's speaking your language by saying Wi-Fi only, right? Well, it's just he, what his point is, like, if you're connecting to a third-party service, you're asking for the service from that infrastructure. There's a government body around that infrastructure that has said, here's the best way to serve people or how most people want to be served. So if you don't like it, you can just say, I'm not going to be on a cellular network, and then you won't get the alerts. But if you choose to pay for a service and subscribe to that service, part of that service is being pushed alerts when there's an emergency. Even if I don't agree with it, I mean, even if I don't like the idea of how it impacts me, I understand where that guy is coming from, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's clear to me, and uh, we won't get into this, but I think it's a timely message compared to the uh, Senator Kramer is talking about. Like, there is no other option, though. Like, your option yeah. is have a cell phone or don't have a cell phone under this situation. So, I mean, I'll just leave it there. But I think that's an interesting point. Well said. All right, uh, we'll do the Newswire a little bit late today, but here's JT. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of October 22nd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Samba 4.19.2 is out. The lightweight text editor Genie has released version 2.0. PZIP 9.5 is out. The open source doll Ardor has released version 8 and an 8.1 hotfix. VirtualBox 7.0.12 is out. The Mozilla project has announced the release of Firefox 119. Moonlight, the open source PC client for NVIDIA GameStream and Sunshine, has released version 5.0. In kernel news, Linux for RISC-V is preparing real-time support, and the kernel team is planning on removing support for QLogic 10 gig e-cards from the kernel due to no one maintaining the code. In security news, Black Cat Ransomware now uses a new Munchkin Linux VM for stealthy attacks. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 has discovered that Black Cat's new Munchkin tool is a customized Alpine Linux distribution that comes as an ISO file. After compromising a device, the threat actors install VirtualBox and create a new virtual machine using the Munchkin ISO. Munchkin enables Black Cat to run on remote systems and encrypt SMB file shares. In open source AI news, NVIDIA boosts LLM inference with a new open source library they are calling Tensor RT LLM. And researchers from several universities and Ulther AI, a company renowned for its open source models, have introduced Lima, an open source large language model specifically designed to solve mathematical problems. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. Hey, if you're one of the people I had a chance to see at Linux Fest Northwest, it was an absolutely great time hanging out with the JB crew and seeing all of the impacts that happen at Linux Fest Northwest. It may have not been the full fest, but nothing was spared from the relationship aspect of hanging out with old friends and making some new ones. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live, asknoahshow.com. Head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out all of the articles and references we use to make the show. We'll see you back here next week. Next week.